Tonight, the world's leaders gathered at the United Nations and Donald Trump gave a magnificent speech. So how did Justin Trudeau do? It's September 27th and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon Thank consumer you. I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Donald Trump doesn't much like the United Nations. He never has. It's globalist. He's an American nationalist. It's bureaucratic and wasteful. He's a man of action. The only thing he likes about them is their real estate. The UN is at a prime location in the heart of New York City. Almost 20 years ago, Trump built a massive condominium complex, I think it's 70 stories tall, right across from the United Nations. It's called Trump World Tower. All the fancy diplomats stay there. It's right across the street, luxury building. The UN building itself is a bit weird and it's a bit ugly and it sure does need a lot of renovations. Of course, the UN being run by the UN, foreign diplomats from corrupt countries, they say it'll cost $1.6 billion to renovate it. Here's what Trump said to that. Now, this is a statement he made to the media before he became president. He said, I could do it for $500 million, what they're going to spend $1.6 billion for. The only difference is my job would be better, says Trump. I did the 90-story building opposite the United Nations for $360 million, and it's brand new. So how does it cost $1.6 billion to fix the building, he asked. <laughs> I think that sums up just about everything you need to know about Donald Trump and the UN. But now that he's president, not just a developer, he talks about other things at the UN besides their real estate. Here's a clip from his speech a couple days ago. The United States is stronger, safer, and a richer country than it was when I assumed office less than two years ago. We are standing up for America and for the American people. And we are also standing up for the world. This is great news for our citizens and for peace-loving people everywhere. We believe that when nations respect the rights of their neighbors, and defend the interests of their people. They can better work together to secure the blessings of safety, prosperity, and peace. One of the things about Trump is that he doesn't believe in global government. He believes in international relations and international treaties, but he believes they should be between individual countries or even groups of countries, but not through some massive, opaque middleman like the UN or like the European Union has become. And he's always thinking about Americans. That's his center of gravity. I keep thinking about this one line when he quit the UN Global Warming Scheme. Remember this? I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. I love that line. It's unthinkable that Justin Trudeau would ever say something so basic and patriotic as that. Trump did a lot of business at the UN this week, but it was mainly taking the opportunity to meet one-on-one -on -one with other world leaders who happened to be in town. As in, Trump had specific deals to do, specific projects, and he did them because everyone was in New York. Here's a little video clip the White House released, very short, showing some of these bilateral meetings, as they're called.
Did you recognize those people? There was the leader of South Korea. Perhaps Donald Trump's greatest foreign policy success so far is in reigning North Korea in and putting pressure on China. It's not completed yet, for sure. But there are lots of little promising steps made so far, including the fact that the North Korean propaganda no longer shows nuclear missiles. I know that sounds small and irrelevant, but let me put it to you this way. Decades after signing a supposed peace deal, the Palestinian Liberation Organization still has terrorism and riot in their primary propaganda documents in their schools. So anyways, that's America doing a big deal in the Korean Peninsula. Imagine if that actually works out fully. Imagine if peace comes there. And then imagine those two countries strengthening normal ties of trade visits and one day of civil rights and democracy eventually come to the north. That's historic stuff. That's almost on the order of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And look who else Trump had in that little highlight reel. I don't know if you recognized him. Uh, the president of Egypt. It's an important country that's trying to fight against Islamism. Barack Obama threw that country to the Muslim Brotherhood, but they came back from the brink. Trump likes their president, al-Sisi. And then there was Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. He's a real lefty. I think he's really irritating. Um, but he's doing his best to keep a rapport with Trump. Despite their many, many, many differences, he shows Trump respect. Trump shows him respect in return. So where are we Canadians? Well, the U.S. trade representative, that's their professional full-time trade negotiator, he said it looks like Canada just won't be coming along to NAFTA. Let me quote him. He said, the fact is, Canada is not making concessions in areas where we think they're essential. Lighthizer told the Concordia Summit in New York. We're going to go ahead with Mexico, he added. If Canada comes along now, that would be the best. If Canada comes along later, then that's what will happen. I think that sounds accurate. I mean, he's got his deal with Mexico. They worked tirelessly on it for six months. I've told you before, there were 55 meetings between the Mexican foreign minister and the Americans. 55 meetings. I keep thinking about that many meetings. You usually, in life, get married to someone after fewer meetings. I just can't believe it. 55 meetings. Meanwhile, we were the jealous ex-boyfriend or something in that analogy. I don't know what the analogy is. But besides doing weird things like our foreign minister, Christian Freeland, wearing t-shirts about the negotiations and going to anti-Trump rallies in Toronto that called Trump a tyrant, we were busy sucking up to China, of all places. Jim Carr, Trudeau's useless former energy minister, is now our useless foreign trade minister. He was asked if China is competing unfairly in trade in the World Trade Organization, and he didn't dare say a bad word about China. I don't know, for fear of hurting their feelings or something? So no weird anti-China rallies or anti-China t-shirts like we did for Trump, we, we save that for our key ally, don't we? So besides playing footsie with China, what have we been doing while the Mexicans and Americans were getting their deal, getting married? Well, we've been working on this. There's a tweet, let me read the text, and go ahead and play the little video while I read the text. This is the logo for Canada's campaign to win a seat on the UN Security Council in 2021-22. It was inspired by the colors of the 2030 Agenda and the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. These goals and values are at the heart of Canada's priorities together. So, so we were busy making a multicolored maple, maple leaf? So we were, we were just sort of coloring and stuff? I don't know, like we, we were coloring while the other kids were learning math. We were, we were coloring about sustainable development goals. Why, why didn't we do an interpretive dance if that's what we're doing? I mean, Mexico can get trade deals. We'll work on, on, on the fun stuff. Is that, that's real. That is not a satirical 
parody site. Now, we already have a flag. It's already in liberal colors. It's a pretty simple flag, pretty recognizable. Everyone knows what our flag means. Could you, could you imagine another country that is spending time doodling and coloring its flag instead of, you know, doing trade negotiations in a trade negotiation? And there was much mockery of this new Maple Leaf on Twitter. And so the liberal government doubled down. Let me read to you from Louise Blay, whose biographer describes her as ambassador and deputy permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations. Let me just read from what she said. She said, our race for the UN Security Council is one of the most competitive in recent history. We gave this logo a great deal of thought. It took over six months of creative discussion. We wanted it to reflect our aspiration and be forward-looking. And Blanchard Canada kept challenging us to get it right. Okay, so nothing about NAFTA, nothing about anything substantive. I mean, I, fair enough, I guess. This is at the UN, not the NAFTA negotiations. The UN Security Council, as you may know, has five permanent members, the United States, Russia, the UK, France, and China. And other countries just rotate through and are voted in for two-year terms. It really doesn't mean much. It's just symbolic. It's a vanity project for diplomats. Those five permanent members of the Security Council, they each have a veto, by the way. Any of them can simply stop anything they don't like. And of course, even if they didn't have a veto, this is just a talk shop. I mean, these are the countries in the world with the serious militaries, the serious foreign policy. They would do what they want anyways. Now, here's a list of the junior members elected for two-year terms. You can see Kazakhstan, Equatorial Guinea, Cote d'Ivoire. Without cheating, without Googling, could you find Equatorial Guinea on a map? Don't lie. Could you find Equatorial Guinea on a map? But Canada's diplomats really, 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 really want to be on the Security Council. And you need other countries to vote for you, like Equatorial Guinea managed to get. But other countries aren't thrilled with Justin Trudeau right now. Uh, from Saudi Arabia to India to China to Australia to the United States. A lot of countries sort of think Trudeau is a lightweight or a bungler. I wonder what would possibly give them that impression. But this is the most important thing to our ambassadors right now. They literally spent six months, that's what they said, tinkering with that logo, and they kept coloring it and coloring it, and then at night putting it in their little hope chest under their bed and daydreaming about it and then doodling the letters JT Hearts UN in their, in their scrapbook. And you read her tweet. Their head ambassador, Mark Andre Blanchard, just told them to keep at that little maple leaf until they got it right. Go, go work on it some more. I tell you, I wish they kept at that NAFTA deal, just work on it some more until they got it right. But then again, I, I'm not good at coloring. Now, the ridicule continued. So Ambassador Blay did some damage control about her comment about six months of work on the coloring project. So she said, to those who rightfully inquired about cost, I am pleased to report that it was designed in-house and the six months spent deciding were reflective conversations, not full-time staff hours. Hey guys, uh, big meeting today at the boardroom. We're gonna have a reflective conversation. This is meeting number 22. We've gotta get this done in six months, people. We're gonna have another reflective conversation about this Leaf, come prepared with your speaking notes. We're going to keep the meeting just to 90 minutes this time. I think she thinks her tweet made it better. Hey, guys, we didn't hire outside consultants. 
Uh, it was just all our staff who worked on it internally. All these Government of Canada employees, all of them overpaid, many of them in government unions. We just met and met and met till we got it right. We spent six months meeting about this coloring project, but don't worry, it was reflective conversations, not full-time staff hours. Do you know even what that means? It doesn't mean anything sensical other than you paid for it and they're so proud of it and they're shocked that you're not proud of it too because they don't really care about substantive things in the liberals of Justin Trudeau. They care about photos and logos and selfies and Vanity Magazine photo spreads. I knew that Justin Trudeau had a full-time photographer who traveled with him wherever he goes, but I didn't until today know that he has a full-time videographer too, jet-setting, going everywhere. Here's a tweet from that videographer as he and Justin Trudeau's photographer posed together like their boss likes to pose. So I suppose a third photographer shot those two posing, as the videographer wrote, at the United Nations today, Adam Scotty and I had an important bilateral video and photo. Much unites us and there is much we can work on together to make the lives of both our peoples more prosperous. For one thing, photographers could get videographers lunch once in a while. <laughs> you paid for that, people. You paid for that. They're actually making fun of how vacuous their boss is. You gotta admit. It's just funny banter. They're living the high life. They're loving New York City. Listen, who doesn't love New York City? It's the most amazing city in the world, I think. For all of his anti-Americanism, Justin Trudeau flies down to New York City every few months. He goes to the show, he goes to some, some fancy restaurants, all VIP style, all private jet style, you pay for it all. Maybe he gives a male feminist speech here or there, maybe he unveils a colorful logo. Job done. I really think he believes that's his job, to be a mascot. Um, look, nobody cares. Nobody cares about Trudeau. In fact, most people just weren't even there in the room when he gave his speech at the UN. Why would they listen to him? You're a busy ambassador for a foreign country. You're going to sit there and listen to Justin Trudeau give a speech. Why? You're going to learn something that was actually of interest to you as an ambassador for your country? In your interest? Of course not. Now, there was a lunch for all the the uh, country's leaders. That, that's a pretty high-powered lunch. You got all these leaders in town uh, for the UN. Um, Trump was eating lunch and he was talking with some other leaders. He was shaking hands. Uh, he was sitting at the table, but he would stand up for some quick hellos. I mean, you can imagine, what, 200 world leaders, not all of them in New York, obviously, but every single country, their leader or their ambassador, they want a moment with Donald Trump. Some of these world leaders have never met him yet. Others have some really pressing business. Donald Trump, you got to look at this. Now, Trump is polite enough, but he's the big dog, and he has his own priorities. As you saw, those priorities included South Korea, Egypt, and France. There was no time for Trudeau. Now, look at this. I'm going to show you some uh, photos, some video from different angles. I want to make sure you see this right. Look at this. Trudeau sees Donald Trump sitting down at lunch. Like so many other leaders, he comes over, but he doesn't want to look you know, too desperate. He comes over, now he talks first to the man sitting next to Trump. I'm not sure who that other man is yet, I'm sorry. And then he taps Trump on the shoulder. Trump looks up, sees who it is, and he doesn't get up, and he doesn't talk. Trudeau shakes Trump's hand for literally one second, and then he walks away. Because why would Trump get up for him. Why would Trump talk with him? Remember, Donald Trump phoned Justin Trudeau the other day. On the very day he was set to announce his Mexico trade deal, he called Trudeau. Trump did. I don't know what he was going to tell him, but Trudeau refused to take the phone call. 
because you know he's so busy with more important things like coloring. Look, Trump's got Trudeau's number. He's not going to stand up to talk about male feminism or global warming or coloring books with Trudeau, is he? Here's Trump standing up, though, to greet the president of Mexico, though, face-to-face, -face, though, have a little conversation, though, because they have a deal. They have grown-up stuff to talk about, like factories and trade. Justin Trudeau is standing apart from them in that photo, thinking about his, I don't know, coloring book, Maple Leaf or something. Maybe he should, maybe he should try the socks thing again. Yeah, here's a picture of Trudeau showing off his fancy socks to Angela Merkel a year ago. This was a loving article in a newspaper in India. Those socks are world famous. They're not as impressed with Trudeau or his socks in India anymore. The fiasco trip to Quebec and the, and the coloring book thing, it doesn't seem to be clicking. Here's a story in the Daily Mail, that's a UK newspaper, pointing out that Donald Trump refused to have a bilateral with Trudeau. Refused. Even though, according to the Daily Mail, Trump had five hours of spare time to do so. He just didn't feel the need to be scolded about carbon dioxide or male privilege or whatever Trudeau wanted to talk about. Trump had grown-up stuff to do. North Korea, China, Russia, Germany, Japan, Mexico, Egypt, whatever, whatever. But hey, we don't need that Donald Trump guy. No, we, you know, Trudeau had a one-on-one -on -one bilateral with the leader of Nepal. That's a country in Asia. That's where, uh, that's where Mount Everest is. Top that, Trump. By the way, in Nepal, their per capita GDP, I checked, it's about $2,500 a year. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Trudeau thinks he can put a new N in NAFTA. He'll get the Nepal free trade deal. We don't need those Americans. Because we've got big plans, people. We've got big plans. And we don't need NAFTA liberals to create new ambassador position for Women, Peace, and Security. Let me read some more. The new ambassador would help champion feminist-based aid programs and advocate for more female participation in peacekeeping and conflict re resolution. Yeah, that's a good idea. Send more women into terrorist military zones. Hey, um, how many logos would that let us color, though? That's the exciting part. Think about it. So many exciting trips for those photo and video boys. So many opportunities to show Fancy socks to new people who haven't seen them yet. Oh my God, we're in the best of hands, people. Don't you worry. Stay with us for more. asked by Global News if he was tracking the whereabouts of 33,000 illegal border crossers, he claimed, quote, that the overwhelming majority of illegal border crossers had left the country. Yet today, the Globe and Mail reports that only six illegal border crossers have actually been removed by Canada and by his government. So a very precise question. If the government has moved six illegal border crossers, how many illegal border crossers remain in Canada? Honorable Minister of Border Security. Yeah, I, Mr. Speaker, I, I know that the member opposite, because of her vast experience on the immigration file, knows that individuals who come to our country, cross into, into Canada, and seek the protection of Canada and, and asylum for, if, as they flee from persecution are not illegal pro crossers and are dealt with according to law. They are entitled by international convention and Canadian law to due process 
any humanitarian support. Well, there you have it, an exchange between Michelle Rampol, the immigration critic of the Conservative Party, and Bill Blair, who is in a strange position. He's not the immigration minister. He's not the public safety minister. He's sort of the pundit minister on these matters. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he claimed that these <coughs> illegals, which have come in illegally, they have not come in through a proper border crossing, are, quote, fleeing from persecution even though they're all walking across from New York State. So what's going on here? How many people have been deported? Where are the rest? Does the government even track people once they've crossed the border? Joining us now to answer these and other prickly questions is our friend Giddy Mammon with the law firm of Mammon Sandaluk Kingwell, LLP. Giddy, great to see you again. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me again, Ezra. Well, Giddy, um, there's different categories here. I, I, I see that there are, uh, according to the Globe and Mail, and I'm relying on their stats here, um, that uh, 900 of these border crossers who just marched across, they were subject to what's called removal orders by U.S. authorities. So these are folks who had already had their day in court, so to speak. They were ordered out, and of those 900, only six were deported. Can you, that's what the Globe and Mail reports. Can you speak a little bit to those stats? Well, we're mixing apples and oranges here, which is what's dangerous. And I think Bill Blair got himself into a lot of trouble by not really understanding what's going on. First of all, we're not really necessarily concerned at all with the number of arrivals here who have U.S. removal orders makes no difference. They they look the same as everybody else who's coming here. So the fact that they've been ordered removed from the United States only tells us that they may have had they may have gone through the entire refugee process. But that is no of no consequence to us. Whoever is coming to our border from the United States in, in at a place other than a proper port of entry is entitled to make a refugee claim whether they have a, a US removal order or whether they've already made a U.S. refugee claim. And so what's striking about the comment from Bill Blair, who is supposed to be our border security minister, is the fact that he believed, even for a moment, that most of the people who've arrived are gone, which means he doesn't really understand that this process, a two or three year process now, because of the backlogs that have been created by the open border. So for him to even utter that, uh, even momentarily, it clearly tells me that he's not familiar with what's happening once people get into Canada. He's confused one statistic that is irrelevant to what we're doing here in Canada. Huh. Well, let me speak to that other statistic because I, I take your point and thank you for the education. What I've just learned from you is even if someone's ordered out of America, that doesn't necessarily bind Canada's decision, but let me, uh, if I understand you correctly, Giddy, but let me refer to another stat in the Globe, and again, I'm relying on them, uh, because sure. that was the subject of the, the quarrel in Parliament there. Let me, I'm just going to quote a little bit from the Globe, and Giddy, first of all, you tell me if the Globe is accurate, and then second of all, uh, I'd like your thoughts on this. The Globe says, the overall number of asylum seekers who have been deported or removed from Canada also remains low since early 2017. That's really when the flood started. More than 34,000 asylum seekers have crossed into Canada through unofficial points. To date, only 398, or about 1%, have been removed. So that's not subject to U.S. deportation orders, removal orders. That's just everyone. 34,000 in and only 398 booted out. Is that accurate? 
That's 100% accurate. Uh, in, in terms of anecdotally, what I can tell you, that should that should be about right. Uh, and, and the minister should have known that. He should have known that it's a minuscule percentage that have actually been removed. Now, um, what actually happens in Canada is when they come from the States and they arrive in Canada, they get a Canadian removal order, okay? We're not talking about the U.S. anymore, we're talking about a Canadian removal order. That removal order really doesn't help us very much because the person has a refugee claim. So that removal order cannot be uh, executed until the refugee claim is finished. But we know now that that's going to take two or three years. So the minister really should have known that in the last year or two, we've allowed in 30, 35,000 people who are sitting around and virtually no one's had a hearing yet. So it's impossible for them to have been removed at the numbers that he thought we were removing them. So the 300 number sounds right to me, for sure. Now, um, each one of these 34,000 people, they really get, I mean, it's called a hearing, but it's really an, a, a plain, in plain language, they each get a trial. So they each get a court date, they each get a trial, lawyers pro and con, an independent judge, that would be the immigration judge. So it would be, I mean, if all of a sudden 34,000, I'm going to use a, a negative example, but 34,000 shoplifting cases were going to be prosecuted you'd say, well, hang on a second, that, we don't have enough courts, we don't have enough lawyers, we don't have enough personnel, it's gonna take us years to prosecute 34,000 shoplifting cases, and each shoplifting case is pretty simple. Did you take the uh, you know, pack of gum or not? But in 34,000 hearings, or even if they come in families, 10,000 hearings on immigration where there's documents from foreign jurisdictions and translators, there is no way in God's green earth you're going to have 10,000 trials in an expeditious manner. And then there's the appeals, right? You have no idea, uh, Ezra, what we're talking about in terms of processing power you need to move these claims. First of all, it's a losing battle. No matter how many you process, there are more coming in. So you're never really making an advance on the number. We have in Toronto the, the, the largest uh, office of the Immigration Refugee Board, and the number of courtrooms we're talking about are in the dozens. Just to give you a visual, in each hearing room, you have a judge, like you said, you have counsel for the government, you have counsel for the individual, you probably have an interpreter. There's probably a case clerk assigned to this thing. Uh, it looks like a hearing room. We don't see pu the public there because these are in-camera hearings. But these are hearings that are done actually mostly in duplicate because everything that's said in English has to be translated into a foreign language. So these things are very slow. And because the stakes are so high, it's not a shoplifting offense. This is a hearing that could determine a person's life. We have to be very slow and very methodical. So uh, when you're talking about removing 34,000 people after going just through the immigration refugee board level some of these people will also have a right to pre uh, uh to go to the uh, refugee appeal division some of these people also have the right to go to the federal court all of these people will be given the right to do a pre-removal risk assessment so all of these things are just going to take years and i don't think the canadian public really has an idea of what's accumulating at our doorstep and most of this stuff is going to have to be dealt with, you know, if, if uh, uh, Justin Trudeau does not get elected in a couple of years, 
uh, reelected. This work is going to fall on the next uh, Canadian government. It's, it's going to be a huge job to do. I think I know the answer to my next question because you and I have discussed it before, but just for folks who missed our last uh, conversation, once these folks come across the border and are processed in minutes or hours and maybe give it, they're not detained. Like we don't have, we don't, we don't have 34,000 prison beds. We don't have refugee camps. These 34,000 souls are not tracked. They don't have a, a, a GPS anklet. Uh, they're, they're, they can go wherever they want in the country and they can go wherever they want in the country lawfully, legally, until they're hearing. So they, they can be anywhere. Is that right? You're absolutely correct. Basically, what's going to happen is uh, upon arrival, uh, a quick background check is going to be taken. So presumably, um, you know, a criminal record check, uh, whatever other background checks they can do very, very quickly. Um, what's going to happen then is as long as, you know, they're not uh, all over the Internet or something and they don't have a criminal record, they're going to be asked to sign standard terms and conditions. We call them T's and C's. And they basically say that when you change your address, please let us know. Uh, but yes, you're right. The second that they leave the border facility, the unofficial border uh, facility, they're free to go anywhere they want. They have to report, they have to show up for their hearings, they have to let immigration know. But of course, once you are no longer in custody, those are really things that you decide whether or not you're going to conform with or not. Some of them will, and some of them will disappear. You'll never hear from them again until you happen to trip over them uh, when they may commit a crime or they're in, involved in an incident that draws uh, first responders, whether it's police, ambulance, fire, or something like that. Um, you mentioned that this, if Justin Trudeau is not reelected, this will be a matter to be dealt with by a future government. Um, and I and I, I don't want to make you say that's anything. A fact. That's a fact. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, just in terms of, you know, the next election is a year away. Obviously, you can't have 30 tens of thousands of uh, right. trials. Um, I understand that these numbers are growing. I understand that the last report I've seen month over month, this isn't getting less. It's getting more because word spreads. Here's how you do it. Here's what you say. Here's what you bring. Here's what you don't bring. Here's what you ask. Here's how you get benefits. Like these are not organic. These people are, are following tips. And uh, I understand there's actually apps to help you cross the border. These guys have apps on their smartphones. This is organized. Would you say this is a form of human trafficking or people smuggling? Uh, I'm not going to say that because if it's the case, it would be the, 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 the prime minister himself doing that. He has basically sent out a signal that Canada is a very welcoming country. Um, and when people are rushing to unofficial port, port uh, the unofficial points of entry, uh, there is no resistance. So what's happening, and you don't really need to organize very much, you just have to look at the papers. Uh, do a little research on the internet and you just, you know, go down Roxham Road, go to the end and then cross the ditch. There's nobody, you don't really need anybody's help. You don't need to, you don't need to pay anybody. You don't need to hide anything. You don't need to prepare any documents. You just need to go to the end of Roxham Road and, and just cross the ditch. 
So it, I can't say that it's a form of human smuggling because there is no fraud taking place. There's no organization. There is no, you know, secret things you have to do behind the scenes. It's all out in the open. Um, and, and as far as what you're saying, saying about the growing nature of this, uh, just, just to give you some statistics, uh, for example, in, in recent history, if you take a look at the 2014 numbers, we, we processed 13,000 people, 2015, 16,000 people. Uh, we're now, uh, in, for 2017, a record number of people came in at 50,000 450, and this year on, for 2018, we're on track for 53,000. Now, we have not yet started to deal with the TPS uh, renewals in a year or two, which are not gonna be renewed. We know that Donald Trump is saying that he is going to end the temporary protected status of some major countries of people that they have allowed into the United States. So we're gonna be dealing with those in 2019 and 2020. So if this hole is not plugged, you're not gonna be seeing 50,000 numbers, you're gonna be seeing 100,000 numbers. And, uh, you know, we just have to completely rethink uh, how we're processing these claims and the kind of manpower we're gonna bring uh, to this job because the current one is simply not keeping up with the uh, inflow. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I, I know this is becoming an issue in the Quebec provincial election and talking about it candidly and openly, the rest of the country is still politically correct about it. But I can only imagine if 100,000 souls marched up from the United States, I just think, I just think that that the public, the patience would snap. Giddy, this story, I remember when we started talking about it a year and a half ago when those few souls walked across the frozen uh, fields into Manitoba and, and we thought it was unusual and it, I never thought it would have grown, but you predicted it. You thought it would grow and it's continuing to grow. Last word to you, Giddy. The only reason these, these numbers have not in, grown uh, as quickly as you know you could anticipate is because the United States extended the TPS uh, protection for no, a number of countries. So those people aren't running to the border because they've now got 18 month uh, deferral on potential removal. But if you believe Donald Trump, and I think you'd be foolish not to believe Donald Trump, he said this is not getting extended, too bad. And so you can imagine that those people are going to have no alternatives except to follow in the footsteps of other refugee claimants and just simply walk north and cross the border. And if, and if there's no, no one to stop them, then they're going to be coming in. Now, all of this is OK. If, if Canadian citizens are OK with this, they, they don't mind these numbers. And this is what they want, that that's fine. But that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to oppose anybody's desire to help refugees and the extent that they want to help refugees, but those are the numbers that we're going to be dealing with. And if that's, those are the numbers, we need to rebuild the Immigration Refugee Board and we have to double our resources or triple our resources to deal with these cases properly. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, Giddy Mammon, always a pleasure and an education. We, our viewers, I think, really rely on you to give us the facts because you know them. this is your business. You have been a lawyer for immigrants and refugees uh, your whole career, and we thank you for that expertise. Thank you for having me. All right, there you have it, Giddy Mammon. He's a lawyer with Mammon Sandaluk Kingwell, LLP. And as I mentioned, he loves genuine refugees. He has a warm heart, but he also brings a savvy eye 
to the political shenanigans. I really value his contribution. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey there, welcome back. Well, you know, I, I like talking to Giddy Mammon. Um, he is, he knows his stuff, doesn't he? You, do you remember when we had a big interview with Giddy? I think it was about nine months ago now. And he told us <clears throat> that one of the most interesting jobs in his life that helped set him on his path was he worked at Pearson Airport in, for the border control. And his job was to sort of stress test people who were trying to BS their way into Canada. Um, he was hired, if I recall, um, was it when the Pope was in Canada for a meeting? And so they were really on the lookout for uh, bad actors who would maybe come, God forbid, to commit murder or terror. So Giddy got his training listening to all the lies and tricks at the border. It's interesting that he went from that negative experience to becoming a lawyer for immigrants and refugees. I find that very fascinating. He's got a warm heart, as I said earlier, but he obviously has a hard head, soft head, soft heart, hard head. That's a good combination, right? You don't want a hard heart and a soft head. You want a hard head, but a soft heart. That's Giddy, and I, I say both those parts as compliments. Um, so he does it like it is. And if Donald Trump lifts the temporary uh, permits for all these countries, I think Haiti is one of them, get ready for 100,000 new Haitians to come to Canada. And you think Donald Trump's gonna, you think Justin Trudeau's gonna stop him? Get ready, I don't even know what the other countries are, but get ready for all of them to come. And as Giddy said, they're never gonna be kicked out. They're never going to leave. Justin Trudeau has managed to find a way to turn us into the Germany of North America, where you have countless migrants just walking in, no rule of law, no process, no vetting, just come on in. You know, I'm afraid uh, Trudeau might win his election again next year, and this will continue for five years, not just one. Hey, folks, um, I actually pre-recorded this interview and this show today. I pre-recorded it yesterday. Because today, as I'm, we're airing this, I am actually in the United Kingdom at Tommy Robinson's trial. And I wanted to pre-record this so I didn't miss a day. Sheila is going to host my show tomorrow because I'll be flying home. But uh, Tommy Robinson, our former employee, is on trial again today for that same contempt of court charge he had back in May in Leeds. They're having a do-over. So I went over there to be in the court and report on it. If you want to see my video reports, go to tommytrial.com. And I'll be back doing my proper show on Monday. She'll be here tomorrow, but I'll be back on Monday. Until then, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, goodbye. Keep fighting for freedom.